welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7, streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thanks, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you would like to know more of Walter's music, thank you, Davine Dial, for managing WPVMFM. If you would like to know more about community radio, WPVMFM.org is a good place to start. And if you would ever like to reach out to me, Nave at JamesNave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. On December the 18th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, I'm going to be performing A Child's Christmas in Wales on Zoom. If you would like to join me, I do it every Christmas. I would love to have you be part of that gathering. You can find the link for that at jamesnave.com. And if you would ever like to join me and my creative collaborator on Saturday morning for our imaginative storm writing prompt of the week gathering, we would love to have you 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We play around with writing. It's a writing workshop, a salon, a conversation, just a a really great gathering. I've been doing it for a year and a half now, so we have a good group. The door is always open. There's never a charge. You can find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. I have some great guests lined up for 2023 and looking forward to interviewing them. I'm also having a good deal of fun doing solo shows like the one I'm doing today for you. As I've been doing these solo shows, the theme of identity has emerged. I'm thinking of Emily Dickinson's poem, I'm Nobody, Who Are You? And it goes like this. I'm nobody, who are you? Are you nobody too? Then there's a pair of us. Shh, don't tell. They'd advertise, you know. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring bog. I've always liked that little poem. It's simple. And when I performed it years ago for the young students, kindergarten through third grade, they loved it. They liked the idea of frog and bog and how it rhymed and nobody and somebody. And of course, students in school, no matter what grade they're in, they're trying to figure out who they are. Hey, kid, what are you going to be when you grow up? And then, of course, the child looks up and struggles for some kind of pat answer that really comes most likely from the external circumstances the child's in, like what the child's mother or father does for work or an uncle or an aunt, or maybe somebody down the street has been kind to them behind the the store counter. Maybe they want to open up a store. And so often adults will ask children if they want to be somebody or what will you be when you grow up. And those are all legitimate questions and most children attempt to answer them and spend their entire education trying to figure those things out. And rightfully so. It's very, very important. Our identities are essential. Who we are, how we present ourselves, 
how the world sees us, how we interact with the world. So it's worth thinking about that contrast, the tension between being nobody and being somebody. And I think there is a bit of irony there because Emily Dickinson was clearly somebody. She was hardly a nobody. She may have fancied herself a nobody because she stayed close to home. That said, today she's considered one of the great American poets, an enduring name. Many people who have very little awareness of poetry know who Emily Dickinson is, or at least they know the name, and often they have a sense of one or two of her poems. And she was indeed a, a somebody poet by, by great measure. So when she says, how dreary to be somebody, I wonder if she really meant that. So we're back to thinking about identity. You have to wonder a, a little bit what Emily Dickinson meant when she talked about somebody or the somebodies. I wonder who those people were in her life. She clearly thinks it's dreary to be somebody. So that little bit of information, identity marker, if you will, wouldn't it be fair to assume that the somebodies in her life maybe weren't so much somebodies after all. Maybe they just thought they were somebodies. Maybe they were the ones who stood on the corner all puffed up with their feathers flying, smiles on their faces with their thumbs in the air, pointing skyward like they were the number one thumb and all the rest of us were little tiny fingers or small toes. Of course, these characters have been around since the beginning of characters being around. We all have come across them and when we do, we sometimes fall for their bravado, fall for their big talk. All of that brouhaha is a way of establishing some kind of identity that may not actually reflect who the people are standing on the corner with the big talk and the thumbs in the air. I say this because I likely myself have stood on the corner with my thumbs in the air more than once, talking the bravado, trying to impress somebody who walked by, or maybe more than one person who walked by. That's why I am so interested in identity. I'm interested in this idea of the nobody and the somebody. Like I said, I've stood on the corner myself, and maybe you have too, so you know what I mean. And I suppose it's natural for all of us to stand on the corner now and then with our thumbs pointed to the sky, hoping to figure it out. Certainly the students I've worked with are trying to figure it out. And in some ways, actually, we never really figure any of this out. It's always an ongoing exploration, an ongoing search, an ongoing journey through the wilderness, all the unknown places that sit right in front of us there in the future. Of course, as soon as I say it sits there in the future, I'm reminded of T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets, the opening lines, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Are those lines telling us that because time cannot be redeemed, time doesn't exist, 
I mean, it's interesting to think that you cannot redeem time because time doesn't exist in the linear fashion that we perceive time existing. Of course, this is all abstract and kind of in the head. Time seems like it exists to me, and identity seems like it exists. Even so, I take a little comfort in thinking that time present, time future, and time past are all rolled up into one circularity, if you will. There's nothing wrong with seeking your identity. That said, I wonder if we're really doing something other than seeking our identities. Maybe our identity was there the minute we emerged from the womb and started our life on earth. We were who we are and continue to this day to be exactly the same. Perhaps what we're doing, rather than finding our identity, we are developing it. We are expanding it. We are adding on to it. Who are you? Emily Dickinson asked. A good answer to that is, I am who I was when I was born. So while it might be worth criticizing the blowhard on the street with the thumb up, yelling and posturing, etc., etc., it's also probably smart to think of being somebody from a positive point of view. What Emily Dickinson was saying, that all the, all the somebodies who think they're somebodies may be a little insecure about who they are. Maybe they haven't answered the question, who are you? I am who I was when I was born. We are all born somebody. It's hard to avoid. You are you, I am me. You are somebody, I am somebody. Now what do we do with that somebodiness? How do we develop it? How do we turn it into a life that's lived well, that serves the community, that makes a contribution to the, the greater good of, of humanity? I'm starting to think I might be disagreeing a little bit with Emily Dickinson. After all, if everybody is born somebody, then it's impossible really to be a nobody. Now, I know what she means. The mayor is somebody, and the poor person standing on the street that has very little in their life, that would be considered a nobody. And yet, the mayor, somebody, the nobody is really a somebody. So it's a, it's a paradox. It's a it's a, a tension between those those two situations. I'm thinking now of a memorable Emily Dickinson somebody type I came across in late January of 1991. My friend Alan Wolf and I were in the Boston area and the cities and towns around the Boston area touring with the group I was a member of and had co-founded called Poetry Alive. It was a fairly straight-up proposition. We had memorized many poems from the school textbooks and we were traveling around performing them on stages and auditoriums, libraries, classrooms for the students. And of course, as you might have guessed, Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody was one of the favorite poems. The students just loved it, especially the younger ones. And there were also other poems that we would perform that were very short, like uh, Ogden Nash's poem, The Termite. The termite knocked upon the wood, tasted it, and found it good. And that is why your Auntie May fell through the parlor floor today. And another one 
by Ogden Nash. Behold the hippopotamus. We laugh at how he looks to us, yet in moments dank and grim, I wonder how we look to him. Peace, peace, thou hippopotamus. We really look all right to us, as you no doubt delight the eye of other hippopotami. And we did other shorter poems, um, say like Christina Rossetti's Who Has Seen the Wind. Who has seen the wind? Neither you nor I. But when the leaves hang trembling, the wind is passing by. Who has seen the wind? Neither I nor you. But when the trees bow down their heads, the wind is passing through. And we would get the students to stand up and they would all be the trees and the wind would blow through and everybody would have a, a really, really good time with that. And we also did the longer poems. There was Robert Service's poem, The Cremation of Sam McGee, uh, Ernest Lawrence Thayer's poem, uh, Casey at the Bat, Alfred Noyes, The Highwayman, and one I always really, really enjoyed by Rachel Field titled Something Told the Wild Geese. Something told the wild geese it was time to go, though the fields lay golden, something whispered snow. Leaves were green and stirring, berries luster glossed, but beneath warm feathers something cautioned frost. All the sagging orchards steamed with amber spice, but each wild breast stiffened at remembered ice. Something told the wild geese it was time to fly. Summer sun was on their wings, winter in their cry. Of course, when you look out at a flock of wild geese flying by, you probably never think they are worried about their identity. They know their geese, and they are flying in formation, and it is a beautiful thing to behold. So there Alan and I were, 1991, it was the middle of the winter in New England, and we were performing shows all over the area for the school students and having a really terrific time doing it. So after the bell rang at 3 p.m., sometimes it even rang sooner than that, school was over, we were free to go out and just explore, hang out, check, the, check out the area. We were in a little town not too far from Boston one afternoon, Natick, Massachusetts. And in some ways, Alan and I were somewhat somebodies because we thought we were really great performance poets and we were traveling around doing our art. We were doing our creativity and we were, you know, younger certainly than I am now. So maybe we weren't full of ourselves, but we might have been standing on that corner a little bit, if you know what I mean. So after school ended and we were free to do what we wanted, we generally would just just go out. Maybe we would go to a gym and do a workout. And after the workout, we would go off and have a little bite to eat. So I believe it was a Tuesday afternoon, probably around five o'clock. Of course, in New England, in the wintertime, five o'clock means it's dark. So Alan and I had gone to Uno's Pizza and we'd ordered a big pizza and we were sitting there talking about how much we enjoyed our day and talking about poetry. Alan and I spent a fair amount of time back in those days talking about greatness. Maybe we knew a little bit about what greatness was. Maybe we were aspiring to it. Maybe we wanted to be somebody or somebody's. Anyway, the woman who was working our area came up to us and introduced herself. She said, I'm Suzanne and I'd like to take your order. What would you like? We ordered the pizza. And, and so she and 
Alan and I struck up a conversation. She asked us, well, what are you guys up to? We told her we were traveling around performing our poetry. And she said, oh, I'm interested in poetry. I'd like to write poetry myself. And I uh, would like to recommend something for you. So Al and I perked up and said, okay, fine. What do you have in mind? She said, well, tomorrow night, there's a venue in Cambridge called T.T. and the Bears. And I would like to recommend both of you take the time to go down to T.T. and the Bears and hear Patricia Smith and Ray McNeese perform their poems. And of course, Alan and I said, well, who, who are those people? She said, they're two really terrific performance poets, spoken word artists, slam poets. Now, Alan and I had never heard the term slam poetry until Suzanne mentioned it at Uno's. So we were game. We said, sure. She gave us the address, wrote down the name. And the next night, after we finished with our work, uh, the evening came, and we hopped on a train and rode down to Cambridge to T.T. and the Bears. And we bought our tickets, and we went inside. So now I'm coming around to the the venue and this somebody that was there. So Alan and I were pretty sure that we could hold our own on stage, and we thought we were good at it. And we were. We were able to really go from one show to the next. I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody, too? Then there's a pair of us. We did that over and over and over and over again. So we were quite good. But our range, upon reflection, was rather limited, and we just didn't know it was limited. So we settle in this big venue, and here's, here comes the somebody. He was at the end of a galley of readers, none of whom were all that great. He was probably fifth or sixth. If you've ever been to a poetry reading, you know sometimes you really hit the jackpot, and somebody walks out and they read their work and it's like being in a Broadway show or something. It's so good and everything is so clear and the narratives are great and the person is connected emotionally and the voice is just right and you can hear it easily. There's no whining around or mumbling or any of the stuff that sometimes you might run into at a poetry reading. So Alan and I were sitting in the back and we were kind of bored with the characters who were coming out. So the last one, I think now that I remember a little bit more, the last fellow came out, very tall, stately man, long hair, not, not drooping way down his shoulders, but a nice head of hair, an academic head of long hair, if you know what I mean. And he was well-dressed, and he had a, a, a rich, angular face, and and he had a pretty good voice. So he stepped up to the mic, and he started to read his work, and he read it in that deep, ponderous, suffering sort of voice that was a little quiet on the mic, like my voice is now. And he would go on and on and on. Well, the room was full of people, and all of his going on and on and on, nobody could hear it. So finally, this somebody who didn't really seem to care if anybody in the room could hear or not, just kept going. And finally, somebody 
yelled out from the back, we can't hear you in the back. And the guy stopped, pushed his long hair back, poked his angular nose up to the dusty ceiling in T.T. and the Bears and said, that's your problem. And then he put his head down and just droned on and on for another five or six minutes or maybe even longer. It was a tedious proposition. But that is a good example of somebody thinking there's somebody when in fact they're small and self-centered and so often they're so much more interested in promoting who they are than to offer the audience a collective experience that everybody can share and and get something out of. So Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody really does sum up those insecure somebodies who may not be so much somebodies as they think they are. How dreary to be somebody, how public like a frog, to tell one's name the livelong June to an admiring bog. Of course, that night at T.T. and the Bears, I don't really remember if the audience was an admiring bog or a bog that was just falling to sleep. I know that I was bored with it, so I was certainly not part of the admiring bog. So after this guy read, Ray McNeese came out, unlike the fellow pushing his hair back saying, that's your problem. Ray McNeese looked out of the audience, he engaged the audience, he was so well connected emotionally with his work, and the moment he started, the room went quiet. Everybody sat up, everybody listened, and everybody understood what Ray McNeese was saying, and, and they even probably could have guessed why he was there. Why was he there? I later learned he was there because he had to be. He was there because he was called. He was there because it was his mission to, to speak about the people he had grown up with in Cleveland, Ohio. And we all knew it, unlike Mr. Long-haired guy robot rubbing his hair back saying that's your problem. Ray knew that the problems in our culture were our problems. And we all had to show up in one way or another, at least he said this, and, and do something about it. So Ray's approach was to do his spoken word art. And after Ray was finished, I was completely dazzled. Well, little did I know that following on Ray's heels, Patricia Smith. Patricia was equally, if not more engaged than Ray was. Patricia walked out on that stage and just like Ray, she did 10, 15 minutes. We paid attention. She had our, our full, full focus. Her words were clear. Her writing was crisp, just like Ray's. These people were truly top-level performers. Now, poor Alan and I were back there in the back thinking, well, you know, maybe we weren't such, maybe we're not such great performance poets after all. Gee whiz, we have a lot to learn. So if we were puffed up nobodies by the time Ray McNeese and Patricia Smith finished, we were humbled. And we realized, well, you know, you, we have a little bit to learn here. 
And so after the show, we, of course, introduced ourselves to, to Ray and Patricia and did what so did did what's so easy to do said well what are you doing now the show's over and of course if you've ever been in a group of people and you've been around the folks who are in the show you know that what people do after a show is go out so off we went to a little cafe somewhere they knew about. Patricia was living in Boston, and so was Ray at the time. Turns out they were on the Boston Poetry Slam team. Turns out both Ray and Patricia were some of the original people who invented the Poetry Slam style that we know today. Now, Alan and I later got involved with the Poetry Slam as well, and, and we made our contribution. And yet... Even now, when you look at some of the performance poets, the young ones on stage, you can see some of Patricia's style in some of the some of the poets, and you can get a trace of Ray's style as well. So we went out, we talked, we had a great time, and in fact, we were even able to recruit Ray McNeese to be part of our performance poetry troupe, traveling around with the memorized poems in schools. Patricia Smith wanted to do that, but she was working at the time for a newspaper and had made a commitment to Boston, so she was not able to just pack up her bag and go on the road, although at the time she claimed she wanted to, and I believe she probably did. I have no idea what happened to the fellow with the long hair who was the nobody somebody on the stage that night. I do know that because of our little gathering after the reading with Patricia and Ray, we were able to, thanks to Alan Wolfe's leadership, come back to Asheville and establish the Asheville Poetry Slam. Once we realized what kind of energy the Poetry Slam had, how much experimentation everybody was doing, we wanted it to be part of the Asheville community. And Alan Wolf, Lee Lancaster, Alan's wife, Ginger West, and I put together a little group, and from that group we were able to organize a monthly poetry slam at the Green Door on Carolina Lane in downtown Asheville. Of course, the green door, the door itself is still there, and the venue's there still, but the door's locked, the venue's closed, and likely what's there now is uh, basement storage for the businesses above. Back when we started the Poetry Slam, it was a lively, lively gathering place, artistically inclined. It had a stage, lots and lots of different events showed up there on a regular basis, including the Poetry Slam. And later, Ray McNeese was there as a feature. Patricia Smith came as a feature. And many of the early notable Poetry Slammers of the day showed up in Asheville. And Asheville eventually, not too long after we started it, became one of the hubs, one of the gathering places for people all over the country to come and experiment with their poetic offerings, their performances. A lot of the people who came through Asheville at the time ended up being important contributors to the poetry community, the spoken word community, the slam community throughout the whole nation. So I would say that we had plenty of somebodies showing up to do their work. 
And most of the poets who showed up and did their work, yes, they had charisma. Yes, they were big. Yes, they could stand on the stage and hold your attention. That said, the poets who came through Asheville and traveled all over the country were really not like the guy on the stage at T.T. and the Bears. The poets that came through Asheville and toured the whole country, they were large, they were sometimes loud, they certainly knew how to hold your attention if you were a member of the audience. They also understood that every show was a collective experience. Everybody participated. It wasn't just about one person, the one standing on the stage. It was about everybody in the room. And that actually, to this day, and far into the future, that's really the key to any kind of performance you do. Sure, you have to rehearse. Sure, you have to be there. You have to show up. You have to get out of your own way, try to connect emotionally. It's also important to know that it's the collective effort. Everybody in the room is participating in your performance. And when you do it well, when you get out of your way, the people in the audience will start to think they're the ones on stage. It will become their experience. And when that happens, you become, in a sense, not so much invisible, but you become more the, the channel, the vessel that's delivering the experience. Funny enough, when that happens, even though the people in the audience think it's all about them, because it is, they, in turn, reward you for giving them the experience they came to have. And when I say reward you, they credit you for giving them something that was valuable. And when that happens, they remember you. And if they see that you're performing in another venue or back at the same venue later down the line, they'll come back for more. You become valuable to them because you are the vehicle that helps them fulfill some needs they have. You may not even know what those needs are. Some needs might include insight, uh, awareness, recognition, or maybe somebody's grieving. Maybe somebody has a broken heart. And when they come to hear you do your performance, whatever it is, you, you relieve the broken heart a bit. You allow them to transition through their grief in an easier way. You never know what the needs are. If you show up, like Ray and Patricia showed up and many of the other performance poets, you will satisfy those needs because the experience becomes a reflective experience. You are reflecting off of the audience. The audience is reflecting off of you. And many, many needs throughout the room are being fulfilled within that one time frame, within that one performance that you are giving. Or it could be a talk. It could be some kind of interaction conversationally. It could be many different ways of interacting with a group of people. No matter how you do it, if you show up and everybody in the room shows up, and you interact together without being so reflectively narcissistic, without being the little somebody. And when you do that, you'll find the experience for the entire group will always be meaningful. And what will happen is everybody in the room will start to realize their somebodiness rather than their nobodiness. 
somebodiness in the best sense of all of us accepting ourselves for who we are. And once you do that, you reframe the criticism that Emily Dickinson had of the somebodies, the little somebodies, and everybody becomes celebratory somebodies rather than dreary somebodies. Actually, you could probably rewrite the poem a little bit especially thinking of being a celebratory somebody rather than a dreary somebody, it could go like this. I'm somebody. Who are you? Are you somebody too? Then there's a pair of us. Do tell. Advertise, you know. How joyous to be somebody. How public, like a symphony, to tell one's name the live-long June to an admiring rainforest. I tossed in admiring rainforest because it's the most dramatic thing I could think of that would be in opposition to a bog. Identity. Somebody's, nobody's. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Occasionally, people will strike up a conversation with me about the value of poetry, and they will often wonder, what's the point? They'll ask that question, what's the point? Sometimes they will say, well, what does it have to do with me? Here we are back to identity. Who am I? Who are you? Who are we? I've often referenced Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody as an example of a poem that will give you something to think about. It will give you some ideas around the question, who am I? And of course, the who am I question is also the question about building identity. Who am I? How can I find out more about myself? How can I go deeper into my psychology, into the swamp of my psychology, and discover things I didn't know that I had had? It's an imaginative process, of course. I love to quote Charles Wright. He has a line in a poem titled Lonesome Pine Special, and the line goes like this. What is it inside the imagination that keeps surprising us at odd moments when something is given back we didn't know we had had in solitude, spontaneously, and with great joy? So when you discover things in the swamp of your psychology you didn't know you had had, it's naturally surprising, delightful perhaps, maybe a little frightening if it's something that has some edge around it, some sharpness. Even within the frightening areas, you can still have delight and joy. Here we are back to the tension, the contrast, the paradox, the identity. I mean, we are a part of all that we have met, yet all experience is an arch, where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever. As we move, we are indeed a part of all that we have met. It's all in there. And it is all functioning at the same time. The joy, the fears, the doubts, the happiness mixed up in this beautiful melange of things. The rainforest, if you will. And the idea about being a part of all that we have met comes from Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Even in the most simple times, you and I are complicated creatures with very large stories to tell. And most everybody's story is full of contradictions contrast tensions, the clashing of needs and emotions. Here's what Walt Whitman says about all those contradictions. Do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. And Walt Whitman's not the only one who's large and who contains multitudes. We all do. Here we are again, identity. 
we are all born who we are and we remain who we are until we are no longer on this earth. We build out that who-ness of who we are and we call that our identity, which is an ongoing, constantly evolving series of discoveries. And why wouldn't it be? So Emily Dickinson's poem, I'm Nobody, got me started thinking about somebodies, the contrast and the tension between those two ideas, somebody, nobody. And so the great value of a classic poem like Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody is that it allows us to pause for a moment and think about what she really means when she says, I'm nobody, who are you? I rephrased the poem, not because I'm trying to compete with Emily Dickinson, more I'm attempting with you right now to explore that contrast between the nobodies and the somebodies, the little somebodies and the more significant celebratory somebodies. That's the purpose of poetry. I contain multitudes. We could spend two or three hours in a conversation on a Sunday afternoon about what Walt Whitman means when he says, I contain multitudes. On the surface, we know what it means. We are complicated creatures, as I've already said. And yet, when you dig into it, things start to bubble up around containing multitudes, like being the celebratory somebody. When you think of the significance of being somebody and always being somebody, then what kind of responsibilities do you have around those gifts? Do you make something of it? What kind of contributions do you make? What kind of interactions do you have with the other somebodies around you? And then how do you interact with people who feel diminished and are trying to overcompensate in their somebodiness, like the guy on the stage at TT and the Bears? Maybe a specific answer to the questions I just asked might simply be generosity. Once you start to feel like you have a large base to work from, a large somebody base, then you have more to give. So you're more generous. So that means maybe you can make room for people who say, that's your problem. You can certainly make room for yourself when you work with poetry. It does require you to be thoughtful, slow down, reflect, engage. This is especially true when you memorize a piece of poetry. Of course, memorization's gotten a bad rap over the years. I prefer to say, learn by heart, which is also another way of saying you take the information in, the words, the thoughts, the ideas by way of memorization, into your whole body, not just into your head. And one of the reasons people think memorization is hard is because they often try to memorize something that's long, which is hard in the sense that it does take quite a while to get the information inside of you so that it stays there so that you can then bring it back out so that you then can recall it but if you start with something very short you can memorize it rather quickly when i was teaching students and even now when people ask me to come and teach workshops around memorization i always start with this piece i tell them that it's the shortest poem in the world and the title is longer than the poem itself so here's the title 
on the antiquity of fleas. So are you ready to memorize the poem? Okay, here we go. On the antiquity of fleas. Adam had em. That's it. Adam had em. You could probably remember that. It's more a joke than it is a poem. Maybe, maybe not. But it's certainly short, and it is funny. And I don't know if Adam had fleas or not. Doesn't matter. Adam could have had fleas. So even that one sentence, very short sentence, poem, Adam had him, ask you to consider some things. Did Adam have fleas? Were fleas around in Adam's time? Were fleas around at the beginning of the earth? Can you imagine a gigantic Tyrannosaurus Rex being driven crazy by a bunch of fleas nipping at the skin? I mean, you could expand the poem a little bit to say, Adam had him and T-Rex had him too. And once you realize short is better when you're starting out in your memorization efforts, you'll relieve a great deal of stress and also have a fair amount of fun in the process. And once you memorize one short poem like Adam Haddam, you can go on to others as well, like the poems that Ogden Nash wrote. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. But I can tell you anyhow, I would rather see than be one. Here we are back to identity. I would rather see a purple cow than be a purple cow. So the purple cow has its purple cow identity. And the viewer in the poem, who knows what the identity is. But what you do know is the viewer does not want to be a purple cow. Oh, off we go. Another conversation for a Sunday afternoon, three or four hours, about purple cows and what you want to be. And after you build up a bit of memorization muscle, it becomes easier and easier to take on the longer pieces. Even so, no matter how long the piece is or how short the piece is, you still must deal with one line at a time. Adam had him. Or I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. One line at a time. The poem may be an hour long. Maybe 72 lines long, maybe 14 lines long, or 18 or 12, whatever it is, no matter how long or short, it's important to take your time and just work with what's right in front of you. I often will say to people when they ask me, how do you memorize? I say, don't memorize. And they look at me kind of funny. What do you mean, don't memorize? And what I mean is, don't sit down with the material in your lap and try to and try to repeat the words over and over and over and over again until you can say them back. That will work, but it will take a long time and it will bore you stiff. So instead of sitting down and just saying the words over and over again until they get in you and you can spin them back out, sit down and look at the first couple of lines and visualize the scene. I never saw a purple cow. I never hoped to see one. So imagine the purple cow. Maybe you have never seen a purple cow alive in a herd. If you'd been around in 1999, you might have seen the world's largest public art event called the Cow Parade. Cities all over the world displayed hundreds, maybe even thousands of sculpted cows painted in multiple colors. And I'm sure in one of those 
corner somewhere, you would have seen a purple cow. So here we are again. We could change the Ogden Nash poem. I've never seen a purple cow. I never hope to see one. You could change that line to, I've never seen a purple cow, but I do hope to see one of those painted cows sculpted in a city somewhere, maybe in a cow parade. So you start to get the images of the purple cow. You start to feel how the possibilities around one purple cow, one small humorous poem, can play out in your imagination and expand, 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 and expand. So when you're memorizing a poem and you have one line, use that line to stimulate your imagination. And as one's imagination stimulates around the idea of the purple cow, the purple cow grows larger. More important, the cow becomes a somebody cow, a purple somebody cow. I don't know if the purple cow sculpted standing on the corner there in one of the big cities would think of itself as a somebody cow, but your imagination will. And that's what makes this so interesting. Memorization is a lot more than just taking a line in and reciting it back out to somebody who's listening. And it is important to recite it back out eventually. It's also important to let the imaginative work you do around the line inform you, expand you, entertain you, give you a sense of humor about the thoughts that you have. Humor also can lead to seriousness, too. Poetry is as much about the serious matters of Earth as it is about the humorous matters. And yet, here we are at the paradox, the tension. You can have humor and seriousness. You can have a, a heavy weight that's joyful. You can have a terrible experience that has a, a funny moment in it. You can have a bleak field external now that has one flower growing in it. Eventually, if you stay at it long enough, you'll start to build your memorization muscles so you can take on the longer poems. I have memorized some of the longer poems, like The Fish by Elizabeth Bishop, or The Highwayman by Alfred Noyes, or The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service, and also The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe. When I first started memorizing those longer poems, I was like everybody else. I was in a big hurry. I wanted to get it done. It took me a while to realize that there's no hurry. And that awareness settled in when I decided in 1987, during the summer, to memorize A Child's Christmas in Wales by Dylan Thomas, which is a very complicated prose poem that goes on for 25 minutes. It has a lot of words in it. So I started out memorizing it by listening to Dylan Thomas recite it. I had a cassette tape of Dylan Thomas reciting it, and I was driving back on a long road trip from Seattle to... North Carolina to Asheville, and I listened to it over and over and over again on that long drive. And that was in August, and in September I decided to get the text and start to memorize it. So I slowly went through each line. By then I knew the arc of the story. Even so, I would read through it for a better understanding of the arc of the story. And then I would go back to the beginning, and I would start with the first couple of lines. So the poem opens like this, just to give you a feel for the language. One Christmas was so much like another. In those years around the sea town corner, now they're out of all sound except for the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep. 
It took me at least three months to get a decent handle on all of the words in that poem. So I finally got to the point where I could get through it without too many fumbles and stumbles, and I was able to recite it for a few people around Christmas time, which made me feel good. And I thought, oh, wow, I've now, now I have it. And indeed, I did have it. I could say it out loud and get through it. Funny thing, though, I was just scratching the surface back then. I had no idea how many layers that piece had. And of course, if you had asked me during that time if I'd memorized the poem, I would have proudly said yes. I would have been a, a somewhat of a little somebody. Yes, I know the long poem, A Child's Christmas in Wales. I was proud of myself. What I didn't understand, it takes years and years and years to go deep into something. Now it's been a long time since 1987, and I'm still memorizing A Child's Christmas in Wales. Oh, sure, I can roll it off my tongue. I performed it hundreds of times. Every Christmas since 87, I performed that piece. I'm going to do it again this Christmas on December the 18th. I'll be doing it on a Zoom call. You can go to jamesnave.com and you'll find the Zoom link and you can tune in. 6 p.m. Eastern Time, it's only a 20-minute piece, so if you'd like to see me continue to explore it, you can do that on Sunday, December the 18th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. So each year when Christmas rolls around and I start rehearsing the poem for any opportunity that will come along to perform it for somebody, it's my gift to the world, really, I think, well, I've pretty much have this piece figured out, no problem. And every year, I discover something new, as if I had just started memorizing the poem. So those discoveries I make every year may fit into this discussion that we've been having about identity. You don't just find your identity and there it is, like you find your keys or your coffee cup or your shoes underneath the counter. You're forming your identity all the time. You can always expect a new discovery about your identity. Just like I've come to learn, I can expect new discoveries when I start rehearsing A Child's Christmas in Wales. For example, the stories about a man reflecting back on his childhood in Wales the man's much older, he's trying to remember back, and the way the story unfolds, the narrative also has a child in it, a boy, and the boy is asking the man questions. And the man is answering the questions by way of telling the memory story of his experiences in Wales way back when. Starts on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve and closes at Christmas night. I've done this long enough to think I know uh, almost everything there is to know. Of course, that's not true. So this year, when I started running the poem, rehearsing it, I noticed something I'd never noticed before. The poem opens by the man telling us that all his Christmases are out of all sound, except for the distant speaking of the voices. He sometimes hears a moment before sleep. Over the years, I've always thought it was a good piece of information, a nice opening for the poem. This year, while I was rehearsing the poem, starting at the beginning and going to the end, which closes with the boy, who is the main character of the poem, closes with the boy going to bed after having enjoyed Christmas Eve and all of Christmas Day and Christmas night. And the poem closes when the narrating boy says, looking through my bedroom window out into the unending night and the smoke-colored snow 
I could see the lights coming from all the houses on our hill, and I could hear the music rising from them of the long and steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept. Having the boy close the poem at the very end by falling asleep is a perfect way to close anything. But this year I realized the poem opens by telling us that all the memories happen a moment before sleep, those, those voices that are seldom heard. And then at the end, the boy goes to sleep. This year I realized the entire piece, all 23 minutes, is taking place just a moment before sleep. This man telling this story is alone. He's by himself. There's nobody else there. The little boy in the piece, that's him. That's his memory of the little boy, of himself. It's fragmented, and yet it all falls together. So knowing it's a memory piece, a dreamlike state, told by a man who may be alone in a small room somewhere toward the end of his life, trying to remember back for the better days, puts a very different spin on the way I'm telling it. Will it be better? I don't know, but it's certainly a lot more interesting. And because it's more interesting, magnetic, intriguing, I'm still memorizing it after all these years. Sure, it's in there, but the insights continue to come. And with those little insights, like the moments before sleep, my identity gets stronger. Same thing for you. Thinking back now to I'm nobody and the children in the schools, they're doing the same thing, finding little moments of awareness, moments of glimmering ideas, building on their identities. And that's what we do, and that's why these ideas about time, present, past, and future are important. That's why Walt Whitman containing multitudes, that's important. We all contain multitudes. And that's why meeting Patricia Smith and Ray McNeese were important. They become part of the story. A child went forth every day, and the first object the child looked upon, that object the child became, and that object became part of the child for a day or a certain part of the day, or for many years or stretching cycles of years. So we're all children going forth, as Whitman tells us, and becoming more and more of who we are, becoming more and more of our identity as time goes on. And that's why I like to spend this time exploring the notions of identity and putting them here for you on this show. It's a real pleasure for me to have the opportunity to do this, and I thank you for taking the ride with me, spending this time with me, and I would appreciate it if you reflected on it and gave me some information back just for fun nave at jamesnave.com that's how you can always reach me and who knows maybe we can strike up a conversation about identity so meanwhile i would like to say i really do appreciate you tuning in to this show which is called twice five miles radio an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, 
We always broadcast this show first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7. Stream it online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville heard all over the world and on other community radio stations as well. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com. If you'd like to reach out to Walter, Devine Dial, thank you for managing WPVMFM. WPVMFM.org for more on community radio. If you'd like to join me any Saturday morning for our imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session, I, I offer it with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. You can find the Zoom link. There's never a charge for it. You can find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. We would enjoy having you join us. I think you would get a lot out of it as we do every single Saturday. And also... Uh, just a reminder, December the 18th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, I will be presenting A Child's Christmas in Wales um, by Dylan Thomas on a Zoom call. And if you visit jamesnave.com, nave spelled N-A-V-E, you will find the link to the, to the Zoom call. And you can always email me, nave at jamesnave.com, if you have trouble finding it. I'll be happy to send it to you. I'd love to have you on that, on that, that uh, Christmas gathering. So once again, thank you ever so much for tuning in, and I do hope you tune in again sometime soon, and until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.